Before we get into today's episode, I've created a short questionnaire that will help me get to know you better. Those that fill out the questionnaire will get entered into a draw to win an Amazon gift card. So there's a link in the description for the episode. Click it, fill out the questionnaire, and I look forward to hearing your feedback. Now for today's episode. This is The Michael Bryan Show. Hi everyone, welcome back to the show. Today I'm joined with Thomas Fuchs, who is the co-founder and chief scientist at PAGE, which is a healthcare AI system for cancer diagnosis. So Thomas, thanks for joining me. Uh, thank you for having you, having me, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. One of the first things that I was interested in really is how you shifted from the healthcare side, technology. I even hear that you worked at NASA at one point. Like what prompted the the change what prompted the move um that's a good question um i actually started in in healthcare so i did my uh, phd at eth zurich in machine learning one of the very few machine learning labs back in the day and that was already focused uh, first on um actually mass spec but then very very um shortly after that complete focus on pathology and that's where we coined the term computational pathology and so forth uh, it was during my postdoc in, in California and in Pasadena where I had the, the chance to work with JPL uh, and then was very lucky that they actually hired me. And so I played rocket scientist for a few years, um, but then always <laughs> wanted to, to go back into healthcare. And then it was, of course, homecoming in healthcare. But it's that's one of the beautiful things about machine learning and statistics and AI uh, you can apply the same techniques at different levels of granularity. So the same algorithms we developed to detect and find cancer we used on the Mars rover to differentiate sand from gravel so it doesn't get stuck. Or my last, uh, my last uh, space paper was on actually flybys at uh, uh, several um, uh, hours uh, light uh, distance, for example, for the New Horizon probe, Pluto, and similar uh, scenarios where you have to need where you need autonomous computer vision systems to actually point your spectrometers, for example. Um, and uh, again, the techniques behind that, right? Back then, random forest or the deep learning are very similar in in these domains, and that's that's the beauty of machine learning. Now, AI to a lot of people is can be it can be difficult to wrap your head around currently. So for a lot of people, it's still quite new. It's still something that people are trying to understand. And fast forward, we're diagnosing cancers with the system that most people are still struggling to wrap their heads around. So how far ahead of the curve did you have to be to go from technological pathology, I hope I pronounced that right, mixed with AI and then using that to diagnose cancer? It seems like a bit of a leap for, for people. So how did you come up with this idea? How did you actually start this? And what's been your experience of it like? As in, is everyone open-minded about it? Do people accept it? Or have you got a lot of backlash and people still don't really trust the system yet? Uh, yes, uh, many, many good questions packed into that. Uh, so on a very high level, 
of course, the machine learning or AI is a rather old field, right? So we can, of course, go back to Turing or John McCarthy and so forth uh, in, the, in, the, in the 50s and 60s. Uh, but it's certainly now that it really bursts into the um, into the broader public, uh, especially also systems uh, you can interact with with language like chatbots, for example. Of course, the, the underlying technologies were developed over a long, long period of time during these decades. We certainly see enormous acceleration now, uh, but that's of course based on on decades of research. So um, computational pathology uh, that's now when was that 17 years old, more or less, we coined the term um, for 17 years ago. So it took actually a long time to, to uh, get where we are. And again, back then, machine learning was tiny. The largest international conference had 400 people. Nobody understood what that actually meant back then. And what it actually is, is you can imagine, it's really, it's, it's algorithms that help us learn from data. So instead of coming up with a model where you know beforehand uh, if blood pressure goes up and uh, uh, then the, I don't know, the cortisol levels go down and it's this disease, it's really an algorithm that looks at the 100 patients and figures out by itself what it actually means. And that could be as simple as I described now or could be as complex as these very large models we use these days with billions of parameters. Um, and um, in healthcare, so there was a, a gradual uh, increase of complexity of these models. Uh, so from, from simple linear models or uh, simple graphical models to more complex ones, uh, like 15 years ago, like support vector machines 20 years ago, and and random forests, and then approximately 10 years ago, uh, deep learning started getting really traction. Uh, and we had especially convolutional models, uh, deep convolutional models for computer vision. Uh, and now we are entering that new wave of AI where we have these humongous foundation models that are trained in an unsupervised way and can be used for all kinds of downstream tasks. Some of them generative, some of them not, but very often the term generative AI is used today to encapsulate this model, encapsulate these models. That does not mean that any of the AI we are talking about today is general in any way. So AGI, as uh, as as, as uh, we say in the field, uh, or even super intelligent, these are still proper statistical models um, that do very specific tasks, but they have no will, volition, or even capability to plan. But they can be, of course, tremendously useful. And that's what we uh, need to exploit in healthcare uh, for better care for patients and also for better working conditions for physicians and, of course, for basic research to drive that forward. It sounds like it's something that's complicated, but then the AI is able to make sense of it all and connect dots in a way that humans have a hard time doing or simply can't do has there been a lot of adoption with this like are people using it have you had a lot of negative opinions of it or judgments of it based on that because I, I imagine a lot of people will struggle to to be okay with it to be okay with using ai and what's it been like so to your first question regarding complexity absolutely these systems are very complex 
but in contrast to a, a human brain, these systems are not black boxes, right? You can actually pry them open. You can look at every single neuron. You can run all kinds of tests. You can freeze it, unfreeze it. You can do neurosurgery on the artificial neural network to find out what's going on. And there are uh, many, many research groups that focus completely on uh, producing tools for us humans to better understand what goes on in these models. Uh, in our case, it's very often visualization, just pointing out where at the microscopic slide the cancer actually is, or what kind of morphology contributed to um, the, the outcome uh, for that, that patient. Um, there's a lot of work to be done, right? Because these models get are very complex and getting larger and larger, but there's also a lot of work in, in breaking it down for us humans. Uh, but at the end of the day, of course, what we do want are models that can do more than we can. Right? We, of course, we want, to, we want to get the best outcome for the patients, uh, regardless of uh, the feelings of the computer scientist or the physician. And so the way to do that is, is to build rigorous experimental testing around these systems uh, to prove that they are safe and effective. Um, and that's, that's also what then, of course, the FDA is doing. Yeah. And where Paige was very successful with the, with the approval for uh, Paige prostate to detect uh, prostate cancer. Uh, which is, by the way, still the only FDA-approved AI in pathology, which is kind of amazing. Pathology is the yeah. basis of mm -hmm. all oncology, of all clinical trials, and you just have one AI, so there's a huge difference to practice. So how do people feel about it? Uh, like in many disciplines, it's it's there's really, you have that, that, that really a curve where discipline adapts to new tools. And uh, I would say, for example, in pathology, if you go maybe six, seven years back uh, and um, physicians really didn't have an, uh, a, 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 a notion what I could do, there you had these abstract fears. Oh, my God, it's taking away my job. Or uh, on the other side, it, of course, will never be a work and will just steal my time and so forth. That changed over the over the years. I think the field truly realized that AI in pathology and oncology gives you tools uh, that can be very powerful in the hands of physicians. So that these are not autonomous tools; these are decision support tools or diagnostic tools that help pathologists and oncologists do their job better for the patient's sake. And I think by now that's clear for everyone. At large conferences, you have AI keynotes at at, at every of these large conferences, unimaginable just a few years back. Um, and uh, there's now today, we more or less have the other problem that uh, physicians are so excited about the hydrogen future of healthcare that from the machine learning side, we just don't have enough computer scientists to work on all the good problems they come up with. And wow. so it goes in these circles. And uh, uh, these days, it's, it's of course great to be at the, in, in, in that wave of excitement, but that wasn't the case in the past, right? It's interesting that you've now don't have enough technology to keep up with the demand from, you know, scientists and therapists or doctors, consultants, that sort of thing. And you're actually struggling to keep up with the mass adoption 
I guess you could say, of the, the, te- of the actual technology itself? Oh, absolutely. So that's, that's one of the biggest problems. So at Mount Sinai, we actually founded a department for AI and human health, the first of its kind at the medical school uh, that gives a home to computer scientists who spent their lives on machine learning, but applied to healthcare, that they can really operate effectively within the largest health system of New York City. And and their goal is, of course, always to be as successful as as Page was in pathology, but also, for example, for other disciplines where AI can significantly help, from ophthalmology to cardiology, urology, and so forth. Um, And... um, The problem is, of course, that healthcare is difficult, right? It's real world data, it's messy, it's unstructured, it's surprising and so forth. And many computer scientists, when they go through their training, they're used to clean data sets like ImageNet or or, or other data sets where they can purely focus on the, the algorithm. Well, if you want to be effective in healthcare, you really have to understand your problem. You have to be in the trenches. You have to meet with physicians every single day. And that's an enormous effort. Uh, and uh, of course, it's not as well paid as if you go to a big tech firm in addition. Right? So there is, we really are, 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 are trying to build an environment where we can uh, get the machine learning experts who really do it for the cause and, and for the mission and get them in healthcare. But that's our biggest, biggest uh, bottleneck in, in academic research and in, in healthcare, of course. It sounds like your having a, a strange battle or relationship with the idea of being more altruistic and doing things to benefit the people, despite the money not being there, the funding not being there, the people potentially not being there. It seems like you're trying to do the best with what you have. That's true. Um, I mean, compared to the, the past, again, there's really no reason to complain because, again, now every physician wants to be part of it. I think everybody understands now um, that AI will be an integral part of healthcare. Absolutely. In nearly all areas from how nurses do their jobs to physicians to uh, how uh, hospital operations are run. And uh, that change in thought is, of course, a very positive one. And the AI is at Mount Sinai, for example, is at the table in all these conversations and decisions. Uh, and it's a, it's a great environment. But of course, uh, it's, it's, it's much more difficult than optimizing ad placement at one of the big tech firms or stratifying teenagers for social networks and, and so forth. How does page actually work then? If we were to break it down a little bit in terms of how someone might be able to use it. So whether it's self-diagnosis or otherwise, there might be a system for both. I don't know. That's uh, an interesting thought, actually, the idea of being able to self-diagnose. What does page actually do from a, a user standpoint what does it do how does it do it what metrics is it looking out for are you able to mm-hmm. break down the process a little for the listeners and myself as well of course yes yes so first of all it's not in the future it's here today it's used across the globe from oxford to brazil and everything in between uh so it's that's not science fiction um pitch prostat was fda approved nearly two years ago uh, and there are now additional tools for breast cancer and lung cancer and so forth so the way it works is, first of all, for you as a patient, um, let's say you have, I don't know, pain, 
Or let's stay with prostate. Your PSA level is high. Uh, you might get an ultrasound and there's some suspicion. Um, and uh, then you get a biopsy, so a prostate biopsy. So these are, are needles that are, are used to get tissue from your prostate uh, to see if there's cancer. And uh, these are then put on microscope slides. Uh, so, and, and so they are uh, five times two centimeters, for example, and that contain a little bit of tissue. But if you, when you digitize them, uh, the resulting images are humongous, 100,000 pixels times 100,000. So all your holidays would fit on one of these digital images of a pathology slide with, with millions of cells. And the task of the pathologist then is to find the cancer, find out what kind of cancer it is, if there is cancer, grade the cancer and so forth. And that's absolutely important because you do not have cancer until the pathologist says so. So that decision then is the basis for all treatment decisions of the oncologist before, uh, afterwards, uh, it's the, the, the basis of all pharmaceutical trials on top of it and so forth. Yeah. But finding cancer is very difficult often. The, these cancer lesions can be very small. So what Paige can do is, Paige is first of all, uh, a digital platform. It's, it's like a image management system, a PAC system for pathology. As soon as a slide is scanned, it's uploaded uh, into your private secure cloud and then the whole workflow is handled. You have a viewer where you can actually look at these huge images. You can imagine it's like Google Maps. You can zoom in and zoom out and pan around. And then you have AI on top. Uh, and that points out where, for example, the cancer, what decent grade you have in prostate cancer or in breast, what Nottingham score you have, how many mitosis and so forth. All these quantities pathologists have to come up with. And then that goes into the final report. And based on that, the oncologist decides the treatment. And um, what Paige can help pathologists with is find cancer more reliably um, and then also objectively help them to grade it. And what the trial for the FDA showed is that uh, with the use of Paige, the error rate for pathologists went down by 70%. So they have a significantly higher sensitivity and found cancer they would have missed otherwise uh, without wow. uh, uh, increasing the false positive. So the impact on the patients is, is drastic. Wow, that's, that's 70%. It went down by 70%. Yes. So you can imagine um, pathologists have to go through stacks of slides, hundreds of slides. And, and very often, again, the, the, the cancer is, or the cancer lesion is very, very small, right? And that can be missed. Uh, and that's the needle in the haystack problem. And that's exactly what uh, Paige solves in this case. Or in breast cancer, for example, one of the applications pathologists like a lot is um, finding um, metastasis in lymph nodes. So if you have a primary cancer, then the surgeons have to take out lymph nodes, for example, in the axilla for breast cancer to see if the cancer has spread. And that's, of course, a very important um, information for the oncologist to treat. Is it local or is it systemic and so forth? And um, there you're really looking sometimes for a few cells clumped together in these very, very large lymph nodes. And a good pathologist uh, 
and mo nearly all of them, of course, are pathologists who really care, uh, has always is always anxious that they miss something. So if something is negative, you always are anxious. Did I really look at everything properly? Did I miss something? Right. Um, and uh, what they love about PAGE is now that it gives them assurance because it's so sensitive that if it's really a negative case, it's really negative. So they can go home with the good, good confirmatory feeling that they really did everything modern art and technology can offer uh, to diagnose that patients. Um, and so the, the absence of cancer uh, in, the, in that specific scenario uh, is actually the more important task uh, for for many pathologists. So it goes from zero to suspicion, I guess you could say. And then is it page that then says it's suspicious, but it's actually there? Like, what's the what's the distinction then between okay, it's not zero cancer, there is potential for it. How do you go from that to? it is or is it a shadow is it some other thing you know a brightness on the lens or whatever it is how do you get to a point where you go from there's a little because 70 percent is huge that's that's the difference between finding it and not finding it missing it or getting something that's small that might be and then suddenly saying right well it is and you can treat it while it's small rather than waiting for confirmation and by which time it's stage whatever happens to be how do you catch it so early and trust it how do you trust something like that when it is small and you've probably got a team of scientists and pathologists all gathered around it trying to see whether they're right or not to try and i don't know verify it maybe how do you trust something like that um there's again many questions here so the so most very often in, in medical reality, you do not have a team, right? You have a team, um, maybe if you go to uh, uh, Mount Sinai or Sloan Kettering, right? But not everybody can afford that. And that's a big problem. Community pathologists are completely overloaded. The number of cancer cases goes up, complexity goes up, and not enough people go into the discipline. So just to keep the standard of care, you're going to need AI. And that means these patients don't have access to care, of course, at that level. And that's actually where AI can be really impactful in democratizing access to these to, to, to top-notch cancer diagnosis. And it also ties back to your absolute earliest discussion. Uh, there's a lot of second opinion um, uh, requests in pathology. And uh, what certainly will come very soon is the patient's request it right so because they want to have a confirmation like a lab test their lab test in, uh, in 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 breast for example they, in they, they 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 should ask the patholog the oncologist did was page used what's pages score was that system used was it confirmed are you sure it's negative right um, and th that will be certainly patient patient facing as well second uh, on that sliding scale, uh, so technically what, for example, page prostate does, it points out lesions that are suspicious for cancer. That's a, that's a legalistic differentiation because the AI does not make the final diagnosis. It's a supportive tool. It's the pathologist who, find, who signs out the case formally and says it's cancer or not cancer. 
Um, and again, that's that's what's very important. There are no none of these systems actually and uh, autonomous. That's why also they are not replacing pathologists. They are truly helping them to be faster and better, uh, and, and sometimes do things they couldn't do yet. Uh, for example, predicting uh, mutations and so forth. But it's it's always the physician who uses these tools together with others uh, to make a final diagnosis. So that's that's why. Uh, there's the differentiation. Technically, uh, there is, it also goes into the question is that you can assert confidence from a machine learning point of view to these kinds of decisions, but that's something the regulatory bodies, be it in the EU or the FDA, don't really like. So most of these tests have to be binary or a few categories, because otherwise you would have to prove out how a physician actually reacts to a sliding scale. Um, how do you trust it? That's a very good point, right? That's a that's a very very good point. That's a very important point, right? Um, so, it, first of all, trust who the patient or the physician. But let's start with the with the physicians, for example. And we discussed before. There, of course. Um, things like you can visualize it, you can show it. Very often that, that is enough because when they see the cancer, they know it's cancer, they just didn't find it, right? So pointing it out sometimes solves all the problems. If you have more complex tasks, like for example, algorithms that predict the response to treatment, for example, immunotherapy, then the underlying uh, interplay of morphology and cell distributions and so forth can be very complex. Right? And that's, that's not easy to grasp for, for a human because we are not trained to, to think in these highly spatial, complex uh, situations. And the scientific way, of course, to generate trust is to have proper experimental setup. So you really have a training set you train on a separate uh, uh, validation set where during development uh, to test on and then you have external test sets and for example page prostate we tested on 14,000 patients out of 800 different institutions out of 45 countries globally so these were slides from India, from China, from France with saffron in it, from, from South America, Africa, all places in Europe, the US, uh, and showed that PAGE works off the shelf for all of these patients. And then lastly, and that's the, the highest, highest level of approval, is uh, you have regulatory agencies like the FDA who do that properly. And that's not just binary. So the FDA study was, uh, they had pathologists do their task uh, without PAGE and then with PAGE. Uh, and then right. we looked at the difference. So it's not standalone. So it's really the question, how does the tool, the AI impact the final decision-making of the pathologist? Mm -hmm. um, and that lead, led to these amazing results and the approval. But in addition, of course, the FDA also makes sure it's equitable, for example. You have to show that it works across uh, ethnicities and, and, and uh, ethnic backgrounds, um, that it works for uh, junior pathologists and senior pathologists that uh, we actually had to enrich the data set with very difficult cases, with very small cases. Uh, so it, it's made deliberately difficult for the AI. So that, that was a long process over 
three years with 45 meetings, 2,000 pages submitted, uh, but that's okay. AI complex systems, complex AI systems should be regulated. That's something a pathologist cannot say in a LED process that they just look at it and say, oh yeah, okay, I trust it, let's use it. No, it has <laughs> to be tested properly. Uh, and that's, what, uh, that's why the FDA has an important role in the future of AI in healthcare. It sounds like one of the difficult things, but also it's a huge benefit is the fact that healthcare and treatments of diseases, conditions, cancers, that sort of thing, the standards are high on purpose. They're high for a reason. And you can't do all of that without then trusting it somewhat that it's actually doing its job it's doing the right thing and you know sometimes people will probably wish the standards were a bit lower because they want to get involved or they want to do it and they want to play their part and i think that in some ways the standards are quite high but then what are your thoughts on is it so high and then you think okay well if a computer can do it should the standards be higher like should we actually get to a point where it should be higher so that you know anyone can create an ai and and get it if it gets to a point where every ai system can do it what happens then do we just like fade out humans altogether because you know the fda are passing ai computer systems left right and center now because the ai is getting that good is that okay well there isn't really a place for humans all that much anymore yes good question so again, currently we are at the completely opposite side of the spectrum. Again, in pathology, if you want to choose AI and choose something that's safe and effective, you have the choice of one. And it's for quite some time. No other company could pass that hurdle right? because it is very high. It's rightfully high. It's important. But um, as community, of course, we have to develop better AI, uh, generate data, uh, build systems that can pass that hurdle because we need more AI in healthcare. It's, it's I'm always saying today, people are dying not because of AI, but because of the lack of AI in healthcare. Uh, and, <laughs> yeah. and, and that's the gap we really have to close as a community um, and, and to, to, to get to, to a, a future where we can have these, these, very impactful tools for every patient. Um, so I, for now, it, it, we are in the complete opposite end. So there are very few. It's it's very often if you if you just look at public media, of course there are I don't know I think twelve thousand biotech startups. Now everybody puts an AI on it, um, but the ones who really are able to go through the process in building first of all. AI systems that work. Second of all, have companies where you have quality management systems, where you have very HIPAA compliant, GDPR compliant, where you have ISO standards, where you have security standards, where you have engineering teams that actually can run healthcare relevant systems 24 seven across the globe. There are so many practical hurdles beyond AI to run a regular that it is a very difficult task. Uh, I cannot envision a, a near-term future, I don't know, at least not in the next 20 years, where there would be 
too much approved AI, right? There's all kinds of fluff outside. And it's often very difficult also for physicians to sort out because all these companies are flooding them with PR materials and nice ROC curves and, and claim that their stuff works. Uh, but are not able or willing to actually go through the FDA to, to show that it really works. That said, there are certainly areas in regulation where the FDA could have a lighter touch. For example, scanners and viewers, they're quite established. Uh, I think that's there the, the could be lighter touch. And generally, I think it's good to have a sliding scale based on the complexity of systems. If you have complex AI systems, you need teams of FDA uh, officers who are knowledgeable and experienced to actually set up studies together with the companies and prove out that the thing works or it does not, like with drugs and everything else. Uh, but for more simpler things that just would speed up the digitization of pathology, for example, I, I think the agencies could be more lenient. Because of all of the stress that healthcare is under really worldwide everyone seems to talk about it it's always understaffed it's always underfunded it's always struggling to keep up with the demand because well for want of a better expression population is not going down so eventually the more people will naturally get sick just because there's more of us and the demand is naturally going to increase anyway i wonder if the ai is a part of that solution do you think that eventually that will happen whereby okay technology is going to bridge the gap between the supply and demand how little supply there is versus the demand do you think technology will ever get to a point where it's able to i don't want to predict it to go really well you know where all of a sudden everyone's taken care of all the time and everything works amazingly but do you think we'll get close to that Thomas, where, okay, AI can diagnose or part diagnose loads of people overnight. Let's say you've got it running 24-7 because people in Australia get sick and people in China do and people in the UK do, different time zones, that sort of thing. So we could do it 24-7. And then all someone would have to do on a daily basis is have a look and approve the ones that are accurate and ask yes. it to do it again, you know, and things like that. Do you think we'll get to a point where technology can actually fill this gap, fill this void between supply and demand? Um, I hope so. I very much hope so. It's 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 absolutely needed. We talked about the lack of pathologists in the in the US, for example, but in most parts of the world, it's much worse. And um, uh, Monsanto does a lot of global public health in in, in Nepal and in in Guyana and South America and so forth. And in many of these countries, you only have a handful of pathologists for the whole country, right? There's just nobody there to actually serve the cancer patients. Um, uh, and uh, in all these cases, again, AI can be can can really open up access to uh, cancer diagnosis patients wouldn't have in these countries at all. Uh, and and so we we work hard on that and it's 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 important i think and that's certainly the future of healthcare but it's beyond the the patient focus it's also that we don't have enough physicians we don't have enough nurses they are burned out especially after the pandemic they're completely completely overloaded and that's true for all countries right and um AI can help a lot also in, in workflow management in hospitals. In, uh, for example, uh, 
uh, voice, uh, voice recognition and transcription in, in, in primary care, that, a, that a, a doctor doesn't have to sit in front of their PC and just write the whole time, but you have systems that recognize who is speaking, it's transcribed and uh, abstracted, put in context and so forth. That already exists. These things are piloted and that helps physicians drastically or nurses uh, are only alerted to cases in the ICU where really something is going going wrong and it reduces the amount of false alarms um, or, or leadership can better uh, decide um, how the beds are distributed, how many, what kind of beds are, are used and so forth. And in all these areas, AI is already used and will be used more. Uh, and it is necessary. Otherwise, we cannot keep the standard of care. And, and uh, I mean, in the US, life expectancy went down even before the pandemic, right? The, the need is, is absolutely drastic. Yeah, I imagine that created a, a strange scenario for, for you guys at Page where, okay, well, before the pandemic, we're not getting healthier. We're not getting better. We're not living longer. If life expectancy is going down, there's something there. There's something that's causing that. And then I imagine, did it did it go down again during the pandemic? Did that also kind of knock it down a bit as well? Uh, of course, yes, yes. But that's that's that was true for all countries, of course. Yeah. But the, the US was the first developed country where life expectancy was going down. Of course, many of these problems are political, right? We don't have to talk around that, right? It's how you build your healthcare systems. Uh, and many of these problems cannot solve cannot be solved by AI because they have to be solved by politics. But the there are uh, there's a plethora of areas where we, as scientists and engineers, can build AI that that helps patients and physicians drastically, um, and that will be more and more. And uh, as you said, also for home diagnosis, I mean, there you can do uh, in psychiatry, for example, these systems are very good. Also, large language models for conversations, or uh, and so forth. And these days, of course, we are in the early days. You have all kinds of fabulation and whatnot, but these systems will get better for the specific users, um, and um, that will help patients a lot. Early diagnosis. And then again, excess, excess, excess for the whole population. Well, I really do hope that it continues, really. I hope the technology continues to do its thing, continues to take the burden away from, from humans to do things that we can't do or we struggle to do. Or the idea of it being better by 70%, that, that's, it's almost twice as good. And so the error rate went down by seven, so by seventy percent, right? So the seventy percent less errors, uh, and uh, that's 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 of course for the the patients that are affected. That's that's huge. Yeah, I I imagine the difference between the diagnosis and not potentially saving their lives, aren't you? The idea of it, oh, absolutely, not yes. being there and things. It's um. It's crazy that that must have such a big impact on the quality of life that they have, but also the treatment as well. Does it affect the treatment? Like if if you catch it early enough, what happens then? Like how much more effective is the treatment? Let's like speak to not just the early diagnosis, but also the treatment for it as well. 
Yeah. So, for example, in prostate cancer, it's um, it could be the difference between taking out the prostate or leaving it in and doing watchful waiting. Right? So, not always the prostate has to be removed, which comes with risk of um, uh, incontinence and impotence and so forth. Right. So, there are very good scenarios where it's better to keep the prostate and do watchful waiting, for example. And for that, you need very accurate, very reliable. Uh, uh, diagnosis that's that's quantitative and not just qualitative, and that's what what pages are like. I imagine the quality of life going up. Like if you if you know that you have it, like the amount of people that I speak to offline, online, and they say like, now I know, now I know what it is. I can take the steps. I can listen to advice. I can change my lifestyle. I can do whatever it is. But if until they know they can't do anything because they're, they're left waiting. They're yes. left not knowing. They're left in this unknown space of, I just don't know what to do yet. Like I'm still waiting for this diagnosis, this expert to come in and say, this is what you have. We can then prescribe this, this, and this. It's like until you get the diagnosis, you don't have access to to anything really. And you're still walking around day day by day with the symptoms with yes. the, the issue at hand that you're you're hoping someone can solve for you absolutely so that's that's uh most terrible one of the most terrible situations you can be in and uh the, the 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 wait times to actually get your diagnosis are hugely increasing we work a lot in the uk for example also with nhs and and working on, on prospective trials and there are sometimes the wait times are getting really long for pathologists if you need sequencing it can take also five weeks or longer and so forth and in these cases if you have ai that you can run a point of care as soon as you have tissue uh, and 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 it it takes uh, half a minute for the whole case. It's immediately there, so it it can really get these results to the patients faster. So the oncologist also can make decisions faster, uh, and you don't have to have these wait times, uh, which are nerve wracking. Of course, that's one of the many things. If you talk to um, cancer patients and survivors, they bring up all the time, right? So these the being in limbo is 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 a terrible state um and that's where ai clearly we showed that over and over again in studies there were independent studies done from porto to to yale canal in brazil that not only proved uh accuracy but uh reduction turnaround time how does it feel from your perspective to be able to do this to be able to put all because you have a lot of experience in the field as well and then you combine technology and you're able to help so many more people in a way that you couldn't do before. What's that like for you? Um, it's amazing. It's humbling. Um, I mean, I'm a nerd. I'm coding since I'm 10, 12. And uh, uh, again, most for, for most of my life, of course, Writing code didn't impact reality much, certainly not healthcare. Even machine learning back then was a very, very theoretic academic field with very few touch points with reality. And with these days that you can help patients by writing code uh, is, a, is a blessing. It's fantastic. And it's, 
it, it's an accelerant, right? It, it, AI will so, so much accelerate uh, research and deployment of uh, so necessary tools in healthcare that it's, 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 a, it's of course, fabulous to be part of that. Um, took a long time, right? We we're talking about the two de decades before <laughs> that we get to, yeah. got to that yeah. point. Um, but it's beautiful to have impact on patients' lives with code. Did you imagine when you were 10 or 12 that you'd be eventually saving lives with the the words and numbers that you're typing on a computer? No, of course, absolutely not. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 was, that was too much science fiction, although, of course, I, I love science fiction, but that was too much. <laughs> well, Thomas, it's been great to have you on. I'm really excited for the future, particularly the amount of lives that will be saved with AI technology. I think that if there's any area where we need help and where we could help the most, it's living healthier, happier and longer lives. So I'm excited for the future, Thomas. If people wanted to find out more about Paige, yourself, they wanted to connect, they wanted to get involved, how can they do that? Um, so for Page, you can just go to page.ai. Uh, if you are a student or researcher and want to be part more on the academic side, then please come to Mount Sinai. We have many AI programs uh, for students uh, and again, postdocs, physicians, uh, professorships and so forth. Uh, that's a great place for the academic world. Uh, if you're a patient, ask your physician about Page, uh, your oncologist, your pathologist, um, to make sure you get the, the right diagnosis. Um, and yeah, that's never hesitate to reach out. Thanks so much for being a guest on the show. Those that are listening, feel free to subscribe, share the show, tell others, and also leave a review wherever you are listening in to your podcasts. Thomas, thanks for joining me. It's been great. And I look forward to keeping in touch. Thanks very much. Thank you so much, Mike. Really enjoyed it.